So take your Bibles and let's go together to the book of John chapter 11. John chapter 11. According to the Collins English Dictionary, the 2012 digital edition, the term dead man walking refers primarily to a condemned man as he walks from his prison cell to a place of execution. Dead man walking. You may have seen movies in the past that spoke to that and used that phrase even. Dead man walking. A condemned man walking from his prison cell to a place of execution. There's also a secondary definition that they give, and it is this. Any person in a doomed or untenable situation, especially one who is about to lose his or her job. Dead man walking. It's not a phrase we use a whole lot, but it is a phrase that I think is appropriate in the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today. Actually, I think it's probably appropriate on at least three different application points, uh, individuals or groups of individuals who are in this passage that would speak to that. But today I want to highlight two different ones. It is a, a common passage. Most of us will know the story. And as we look at this story and look for that dead man walking uh, as it is revealed for us here, one of the things that I think we should be sure to get is uh, I'm going to encourage you today to move outside of and beyond a religious facade that you hide behind or that we tend to hide behind when it comes to difficult situations and difficult questions. I'll elaborate on that as we go, but the essence of it today as we begin here is that we all seem to have that, that move towards stepping back from rather than engaging difficult questions when it comes to life and God. This passage forces us, I think, to deal with some of that, and here's the essential element that it forces us to deal with today. There are those occasions in life where if we were totally honest, we would probably have to admit that we are either disappointed with God or maybe even disillusioned with God. We have this bubble up to the surface in lots of different ways in our lives. We have that ready, quick folk theology kind of response that we hide behind often, that we know that there's truth in it, that, well, you know, you just need to trust God. Okay, but the problem is that the character of God and the person of God often is the dead man walking for us. So sometimes we treat God like he's the one who's going to his death, at least in the way we see him. This week, I had a number of conversations that kind of point to this. Not so much of it was that flagrant accusation, although that did come out from time to time. But, but when we as a church family dealt with what we call the untimely death of one of our members, it, it pushed some of us to that fundamental question of how could God let that happen? See, that's the question. That's the question that puts God on the spot. What, what are you doing? And if we're not careful, or maybe even if we are careful, those unanswered questions, those, those questions that we have that grow out of the relationships and the situations of our life often push us to the point where we see God and he's doomed as far as our perception of him is. 
What do you do with that? I know that there are those who would say that you should not ever even ask the question. You should just hide behind this blind faith. This blind faith that takes certain things at face value without ever studying and reflecting on the reality that's behind that. What do you do when God seems to have acted unfairly or not acted when he needed to? Lurking beneath those situations in our life is that often unasked question, why? And what is an, ad- what is an adequate response to that? Well, in this passage, where we see that God's character and his reputation are on the line and he's the dead man walking, what, a pro- what response should we take? So in this, now I'm going I'm to go with two big points. And here's the first one. One of the things that we must come to recognize in life, in our Christian lives, is that God doesn't operate on our timetable. See, one of the reasons that we push God into those situations where we demand an answer of why or how could you let this happen, typically that comes from us as we don't get our time frame met. So let me show you in this passage where we get this. And I'll just tell you, there's some difficult pieces of this passage uh, probably a dozen sermons easily we could work through this. I'm going to give you one instead. But uh, as we work through, there's some things that are really difficult. And here's the first one. The first six verses, this whole idea of the timing of God bubbles to the surface for us, and we must deal with it. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of man, a son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now hold on a second. Let's get behind this. John goes to careful length here to make sure that we understand the relationship between Jesus and this brother and sister and sister. Now that's significant for us because we don't often have those times where we come to the Gospels and, and you know, the writer of the Gospel pulls the covers back for us so that we see that relationship front and center. But John goes to great lengths here in six verses to underscore and underscore again the love that was between these family members and Jesus. In other words, this is not somebody who Jesus happened to be passing along on a road somewhere and a week later reflects back on that and goes, ah, you know, I think I met that person. John lets us know that this is an intimate kind of a family bond that they have together. Well, if that's the case, why would Jesus wait? Because John's careful about that too, to let us know that something's going on here. This guy's about to die. It is a close family relationship between them. And yet... Jesus seems to be rather disinterested in what's going on. Why didn't Jesus just drop everything and go when he was summoned for this? And you may not be asking that question of this text, 
But that becomes the question when we're the subject of the need. Rarely do we go in prayer and say to God in any way, God, I'm dying here. So if you get around to it next week, check me out. Our tendency is when we take situations to God that are pushing us and stressing us, we take them to God and we want answers right now. And I take that back. We don't only just want answers right now. We want action right now. But the reality is, and we find it here, that sometimes God doesn't meet our timetable in the things that we go through in life. So how do you respond when he holds off like that? When you're the one with a family member who is ill to death. When you're the one who is the patient ill to death. And that could come in physical manifestations or relational manifestation, any level of our lives where we are the identified patient and we're the ones who need God to step in, most of the time we won't settle for later. Well, at least we should say that it's when God doesn't operate on our time frame that we tend to get a little disillusioned with him. Or at least disappointed in him. Now, this is the point where I want to make sure that, that, you, that we're on the same page here, right? Because our religious sensibilities now start bristling. Uh, we get defensive about this. And we start having to come to grips with some of those thoughts that we have that our religious sensibilities won't let us vocalize. And so what happens is we have this inner turmoil sometimes where where we know what we feel, but our religious culture has told us not to feel that way, that you're not supposed to feel that way, that all you're supposed to do is just camp out over here. Now hear me very carefully. And so we throw up a wall of scripture and say, well, I believe that scripture says this, so I'm just going to go over here and I'm going to gut it out. Meanwhile, inside, we have this turmoil. Wait a minute. I know that it says that, but I'm not feeling that. So hear me very carefully. Make sure that you hear me very carefully on this. I'm not questioning the validity of Scripture here. I'm questioning the honesty of the person using Scripture most of the time. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one in the room that has those times where I know what Scripture says, but I also know the pain of the moment, and I know that God seems to be on trial for me. You know that whether that's true of you or not, there are many people who who have connections to this church who are done with God because God didn't come through when they wanted him to. I'm done with that religion stuff. I can't trust God anymore because he didn't come through. I wonder how those sisters felt. We don't have to wonder long. We're going to see before we get too far into this how they felt about it. We're going to see how other people around Jesus felt about it. It's a good place to stop and say, okay, how much of me is in this story now? Has there ever been a time that God let you down that caused you to be a little distrusting of him? Why didn't Jesus just drop it all? 
and go. Well, there would be those, and they would be at least partially correct, who would understand the situation of the passage here and say, well, Jesus didn't go partially at least because it was dangerous for him to go. Now, be careful. That's kind of a big theological accusation to make against God. But uh, let's just pick it up and let me show you what I'm talking about because, in fact, Jesus was on the line here. And we can go back and look through some of the stuff that we've talked about to get to this point in John's gospel. But in verse 7, it reads this way. And then after this, he said to his disciples, that's after the two days waiting. After that, he says to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? In other words, it's dangerous. You sure you want to do that? Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And now Jesus had spoken of his death, death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Well, you see, the reality is that Jesus was on the hook. As a matter of fact, if we have, as we have looked at this going through this, we know that Jesus has already been brought up on formal charges of violating the Sabbath. And those religious leaders with whom he has had these confrontations has spurred, have been spurred to the point that now they say, this guy is a problem. Now they're saying, this guy has to go. So Jesus has retreated back up into the Sea of Galilee region, but now it's time because Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived down in Bethany just a stone's throw from, uh, throw from Jerusalem. And now Jesus says, okay, we have to go. And Thomas is smart enough, he's savvy enough to know he's going to go down there and get killed. You know what? He's exactly right. This is the last trip. They go and Jesus will in fact be killed. But in the process of that, Jesus lays out this whole timing thing. If you knew you were going to go anyway, why'd you wait two days? How often do we ask that question? God, if you were going to do something, why'd you wait? Jesus is intentional about this. This principle emerges that God doesn't operate on our timetable. Mary and Martha desperately wanted him to come, and he waited. It's possible that some of us in this room today are waiting. There are things going on in our lives, and we've been praying maybe for years that God would change some things, change some people, change some behaviors, change some finances. We get tired of waiting. So here's the next little move that we find in Scripture in this passage. This is troubling stuff to me, mainly because I find myself on the wrong side of truth here most of the time. 
I'm enough like you that I have issues with the timing of God sometimes, and so it bothers me to have to tell you that the reason we have timing issues is because we have agenda issues with God. Because that's what the problem seems to be here. The reason we get disillusioned with God and disappointed with him when he doesn't act on our time frame is just another way of saying, I will be God. I will tell you when to act. I'll tell you what to do. And in the midst of all of that stuff, you will do my bidding, God, which makes me God. Except that God doesn't play that game with us. And clearly he doesn't hear So before we look at the passage, let me just ask you straight up, what is your agenda with God? What is the agenda around which you have built your entire life as it relates to your relationship with God? I can't tell you how many, I'm guessing hundreds of people through the years that I've dealt with who walked away from God because he just wouldn't do what they wanted him to do. You know, it is a control orientation reality that comes and indicts us when we say things like, I just can't control, and then whatever the thing is that we're trying to control. That's a sin problem. We're all eating up with that sin problem. And in this case, the problem of control orientation, the agenda that's behind what's going on for them is also one that is one that we have to own. How how do you know what your agenda with God is? Well, one of the best ways to do it is to check your prayer life. What are the things that you pray for most? If you have a prayer list, what's on your prayer list? I, I don't there's a whole lot I want to say with this, and I know that I don't have the time to do it, but so let me see if I can just pull it down into this one example. I, I, I cringe at prayer lists. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have one. I'm just saying you should be careful with yours. Because what tends to happen with our prayer list is we begin to dictate to God what he needs to do. That's an agenda problem. And you know that I've prayed for people in the past... And I pray that God would heal them. And in one way or another, the message comes back to those of us involved. You know, I think sometimes God says, you're asking me to heal that person. And I worked for 30 years to get them sick enough to need me. Why would I heal them if what I'm doing in their lives is intended to make them more like Jesus? See, I don't know that stuff about people. So I just, it's kind of this awkward for me sometimes when it comes to this kind of stuff. So let me just hold that out there. Our, our own perception of what our agenda is is not really to be, to be trusted that much. We see things through the lens that we carry. And we need discernment and we need direction from God to get that right. And so our agenda is that which drives our timing issues and those together work to cause us sometimes to distrust God. So what is the appropriate agenda that we should have? How should we know how we're supposed to go? If we have trouble seeing it for ourselves, how can we possibly trust what we're supposed to do? Let me, let me just throw this out as an example. I don't want a show of hands. I don't really need a discussion about this or anything like that. But I, I, I came to grips with this a number of years ago now. Now, many of you are not aware of this, so let me do a little historical survey with you. Years ago, many years ago now, it used to be that if you wanted to, to get a book, you had to go to a store to get one. 
Okay? That was before Amazon ever came along. And so they had these stores where you could go in and they would just have rows and rows and rows and rows of books. One of the books that made a splash in the Christian bookstore industry, I know this because I used to work in the Christian bookstore industry, and, and the whole support mechanism for the, for the uh, <clears throat> I, I, let me just not even say what I'm thinking with that. The bottom line, we as Christian people love the culture that's assigned to Christianity. And so sometimes a splash will be made until this book comes out and everybody goes, I got to read that book. And so we read it, but we drop our theological filters for that book. And the book that I'm talking about now is one that was entitled The Prayer of Jabez. If you read that, please don't raise your hand now because I don't want to embarrass you. Okay? But there, there is a good theological term for what that book taught. Hogwash. You see, our perception, our agenda with God is very Western, it's very American, it's very capitalistic, and that is that we want to believe that God just wants me to be blessed, to be rich. And now here's the problem with most heresy, there's a grain of truth in it. There's enough in there to pull people into it, and God not only wants you to be blessed, he promises that to you, but our jump goes when we go from, okay, God chooses to bless me to here's what that has to look like, which is what the prayer of Jabez really was teaching. And so if you'll just do this, and we hide behind a single verse, obscure verse of scripture, and try to make it say something that it was never intended to say, and in the process of doing that, we put God in a box, and we say, okay, now, if you're going to bless me, this is what it has to look like. And then when he doesn't, People start walking away from God going, it didn't work. If you don't sure what your agenda needs to be, why don't you just go to the voice of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Anybody know what that says? Seek first. Doesn't say if you feel like it. It doesn't say, you know, when you get around to it, seek first. What's the rest of it, Barbara? The kingdom of God. Wait a minute, what is that? Hold on. What is the kingdom of God and what does it mean for me to seek that first? First, by the way, there means only. So there's your agenda. If you're not sure what that looks like, well, let's figure it out together. It's a a journey that we're on and we, we work inside the kingdom of God, but we work for the kingdom of God. But ultimately, it all comes down to this. He's king, not me. See why I don't get to set the agenda? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all this other stuff. You'll get what you need. So that's the agenda problem as we face it. Now let's look at this passage and let me show you where I get this here. Because the problem, let me say, make sure we're getting where I'm trying to piece all these things together now. Our problem with having a timing thing is that our agenda gets in the way of God's agenda and how we interpret what's going on. Uh, and all of that causes people, maybe even us, to get disillusioned, to get disappointed, and maybe even to build in distance between us and God. We see that here in verses 17 through 37, so it's a long reading section. Stick with me. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. 
And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, it's your fault. Okay, you catch that? I stopped just to see if anybody was going to look up at me and see what version I was reading. Okay, now that's not the way it reads, but I'll guarantee you that's what she says. The words are different. The sentiment is exactly the same. So let me read it the way it really reads here. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's a, this is your fault. That's a, the timing's wrong. That's an agenda that is different from that of Jesus. And she takes him to task over it. Now, they're close enough, their relationship, family type, you know, that extended family, the way we all, you know, we all have people like that. They're close enough that she doesn't mind telling Jesus exactly what she's thinking. I commend her for that. I'm going to commend her for something even more than that here in just a few seconds. But we cannot miss the reality that she comes forward with an accusation that says, you didn't meet my time frame, you didn't meet my agenda, and it's your fault he's dead. You ever said that to God? Maybe not about somebody that died, but about a lost opportunity, or lost relationship, or health that runs away from you. Verse 22. Now Martha, she gets enough of it, that she gets some things right, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. In other words, yeah, 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 I know, but you missed him. He's gone. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is always pushing the belief question. Do you believe? How much do you believe? Now, let's stop for a second. I'm not through reading. I know that I can't get through the whole thing without stopping. But let's make sure that we put this together. This is now the seventh sign in John's gospel. Six previous times, John has put forward this picture of Jesus in, in the works of Jesus as he steps in and he turns water into wine. Nobody else does that. He steps in as he walks across the water at night. Nobody else does that. He steps in as he turns five loaves and two small fish into lunch for thousands of people. Nobody else does that. And here's the kicker. Here's the belief problem now for Martha. Jesus is the same one who comes to a situation where somebody is ill and he speaks the words and heals that person from a distance. Now, wait a minute. Look at what Martha has said. If you had been here, he'd still be alive. So Jesus says, do you believe? In other words, did you not see what I did back then? And all of us are Martha at this point. Every one of us have sufficient grounds of the activity of Jesus in our past to trust him for the present. But you see, when the timing gets off, it reveals our agenda that's off. And we get disappointed sometimes. 
So Jesus pushes her, pins her down. Do you believe? How much do you believe? And she said to him, hey, this is where she wins the day. <laughs> this is a high holy moment in John's gospel, this verse. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And here we find now this level. It's this part of belief where she gets it right about the identity of Jesus. She gets it exactly right about the identity of Jesus. People around her and around Jesus are, are, are still working on this, but she gets it. But she hasn't yet reached the point where she can take that faith in who he is and all the stuff that he's done and plug it in with her situation. If you'd have been here, you wouldn't have died. But I believe you're God. I believe you're the man, so to speak. We keep reading verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, It's your fault. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The exact same words that her sister used. You think they've been talking about this? One of the insidious things about doubt is it never wants to be alone. Doubt loves to pull in other people. And so it becomes a gang tackle pile on Jesus moment. We do that in churches, especially with funerals like we had this week, where we come together as a group and say, God, if you'd have been here, this would have happened. And the implication is, God, you weren't here. That's not true, but that's the implication. And the implication is, that God's not big enough to handle. But the reality is that we have a, an agenda problem. If you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. We get all kinds of mental gymnastics about why Jesus wept. Scholars love to choke on that one. Here's what I think we should draw from it. Drawing from the verses around it. Jesus loved that guy. And Jesus loved his sisters. And Jesus loves you. I don't want a God who can't relate to the pain of the life that I'm living. Fortunately, we don't have a God who can't relate to the pain of the life we're living. Jesus enters into the grief of the moment even though he brings very intentionally incredible resource to this moment. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But not all of them. There were Baptist Jews in the bunch apparently. 
Because some of them said, it's his fault. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? It's your fault, Jesus. You Mr. Big Miracle Worker, you sign worker, you who loves to walk around teaching and waving your hand and healing people, where were you when my friend needed you? Dead man walking. What good, after all, is a sign worker friend if he doesn't pull through for you in the clutch? Just so you know, to define clutch in that question means agenda. When he doesn't meet my expectations of my agenda and my timing, what good is he to me, really? That that might seem a little blasphemous for you to hear a preacher talk like that. But I'm just reflecting back to you what I've heard for 30, 40 years in ministry with people in the heart of pain who can't seem to find Jesus. What do you say to people like that? Let me just tell you. In the age in which we live now, the post-Christian society in America, throwing a Bible verse at them is not going to help them. I mean, there's help there, but our trust is not in the Bible. Our trust is in Jesus Christ. Scripture reveals the truth of God, but our hope is in Jesus Christ. And so to beat somebody over the head with a Bible when they're already hurting is not going to fix that problem. Jesus does, though. interesting thing. Don't take what I said and try to make it say something else. You know by now that I'm extremely committed to Scripture. I just think we should handle it well. That's how committed to it I am. So just in case you're not sure, because I read over it pretty quickly, the agenda statement of this passage is way back in verse 4. Why did Jesus wait? Why didn't he fix him from a distance? Why, what's going on here? Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The agenda that Jesus is using as he drives him into this situation is that God be glorified. You want to be fail-proof, always certain that your agenda is right? Make it to be that God be glorified in your life. It's a lot easier than trying to figure out all the little nuances of how to fix stuff. You know, when I was a kid, um, kid being up until I was 20, um, I was getting into all kinds of trouble. And, and I would try to figure out every possible way I could get caught doing what, wrong what I was about to do. And then I would make sure I didn't do any of those things. My mother was a sleuth, though. She figured stuff out. She always caught me. You know what she finally told me? She told me something I heard my wife say to our kids. God will always help me to know what you're doing wrong. That's not fair to a kid who's bent on doing wrong. You can't figure out all the nuances of how to get God to do your agenda. It just doesn't work that way. But when you release yourself to his agenda, he brings incredible resource to the table. The timing is always right. The result is always incredible. I would say extraordinary. 
Well, let's, let's see where we find that in here. But just know as I take that last step to summarize all the stuff that I just said, testing is part of our faith. Eugene Peterson says it this way, an untested faith is no faith at all. His primary agenda is to promote the kingdom of God and that God would receive glory. So look at what he does. Verse 38, and then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, not sure you want to do that. He's been dead four days and it's going to stink essentially. I'll summarize the rest of the story by saying this. Sign number seven, this miracle worker, Jesus, brings Lazarus back to life. Here's your dead man walking for real. As he makes his way out of that tomb, the place of death, into the light of a Savior who stepped into his pain and did extraordinary things. Let's, let's flash forward, let's say three days, four days from this event. Do you suppose that anybody could have convinced Lazarus that Jesus was not trustworthy after that? Let, let's go a week down the road. What do you think Martha and Mary were talking about? Do you think they were still saying if Jesus had only been here? Well, he did show up. <laughs> As he's prone to do, he shows up with incredible resource. So here's how we bring this to a close. Our musicians, come on up and we'll have our final song. But let me just lay this out for us as we walk away from this place today. Um, your agenda may well be keeping you from seeing the incredible work of God. I don't believe that Jesus loves you any less than he loved Lazarus and his sisters. I don't believe Jesus' power is any less today than it was that day. So where is Jesus in your life? It's very possible that some of us walked in here today and it was dead man walking. We're the dead man. We're just about done. Or maybe we've pushed that off to God and we thought we're going to give him one more chance. I would just push you to a different conversation between Jesus and his disciples and people, as we saw a few weeks ago in John's Gospels, people started just filtering out. Jesus started making demands on them. And it wasn't all the party anymore. And it wasn't just the party favors anymore. Now Jesus starts making demands and people start wandering away from him. And Jesus looks to his disciples and said, Are you too? You're going to leave also? Simon Peter, normally the big mouth disciple with a shoe firmly implanted in his mouth most of the time, clutches it. Lord, to whom would we go? So whom, to whom have you gone? And if not Jesus, where would you go? Why would you try anything else other than the one who brings extraordinary resource, resource with a love that is undying for you? Why would you go anywhere else? How is it with you in your life today? Do you believe in Jesus? And if so, how much do you believe really? Let's pray. Father, these words challenge us. 
In reality, we really prefer, most days we prefer our nice, little, comfortable, cultural Christianity. With ready-made Bible verses we hang on walls, songs we love to sing, conversations we like to have. But we know, because we've been there, that if we're really honest, there are days that that stuff doesn't stack up all that well. And if it is so because we have marginalized you, we've adopted a culture rather than cultivated a relationship, we ask for forgiveness for that. We ask for the courage to step into the fray that is before us, seeking your face and your glory in all things. We pray that you'd use this hour to change lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.